What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And I am Brian Sullivan, and welcome to The Exchange. Here's what's on tap this hour. Happy birthday. One year ago today, history was made. The 10-year bond yield fell below 1% for the first time ever. Could we be headed back down there again? Potential home buyers, all of you out there, would love that. Forget Merger Monday. This is Private Equity Wednesday. It's all about the consumer. Apollo's taking Michael's private and buying assets from Las Vegas Sands. He also got a $6 billion deal for a tire-changing company. We'll speak to Apollo's head of private equity about both those deals. And the future of work. In a post-COVID world, what areas of the job market and technology will show the biggest demand? What industries have already seen the biggest shifts in who they hire? CEO, who knows, is here. Oh, and by the way, his stock has nearly doubled in a year. It's a new name for y'all, bet, and we'll bring it to you. All right, that is all ahead. Well, let us begin this hour with, of course, the markets. Dominic Chu joining us now with more on what is moving, what is not, why things are happening, and everything in between. Dom. Ebbs and flows, but for right now, it's been a mixed day pretty much for the entire market. We started off modestly lower. We picked up some steam to the downside later on in the morning, and then we've kind of made a little bit of a trek back up. The Dow Industrials right now in positive territory, up about one quarter of 1%, near the highs of the session, if you will. The S&P 500 off about one half of 1% and continued weakness in big technology stocks, specifically manifesting itself in the NASDAQ composite off one and a half percent in the trade so far right now. So again, an underperformer. We'll see if it can find any kind of a bid there as we head towards the afternoon into the closing bell. Now, check out these names. Zoom Video off 6%, Peloton off 7%, Wayfair off 7%, and Chewy off 7%. Yeah, they're all off a similar percentage amount, but the other thing they have in common is that they've all been beneficiaries of that work-from-home, stay-at-home trade during the virus pandemic for the larger part of last year. Many of these at-home-related, work-from-home-related stocks are now seeing some weakness as the continued theme develops for people saying, hey, you know what? Things are reopening. Things may look a lot different in the coming year. We'll see if those expectations continue for some of the downside in these names. And then the IPO of the day. I shouldn't say IPO, the public offering of the day, because technically Oster Health wasn't an IPO. This technology-driven health insurance company was a direct listing on the stock exchange today. It's off 9% right now. It priced at 39 bucks a share, and it opened at $36 a share. Now, You say to yourself, this is a tough one. It's already down from there, but this was an already elevated valuation. Oscar Health had initially targeted a 32 to 34 range, then a 36 to 38 range. They priced at 39, by the way. Brian, at around 36 bucks a share, we're talking roughly a seven-some billion dollar valuation, depending on the dilution Mm. aspects you look at. So keep an eye on Oscar Health, the public offering, I should say, of the day. Back over to you. Yeah, and by the way, that chart that you showed before with Zoom and Peloton and others, I mean, last night when the news about Texas broke, sort of just saying, well, okay, you know, they're not wide open because Texas pretty much was wide open. They just dropped the mask mandate, Georgia kind of the same, that those stocks started to fall. It's kind of the anti-vaccine trade, if you will. I know we call it work from home, but the reality is the better the news is we get on COVID 
and where we may be going in a month or two, the president saying every adult could be vaccinated by the end of May, those stocks might be in a world of hurt. And, and that's the good point there. So it wasn't, I was going to say, Brian, it wasn't just the Texas headlines as well. It was this idea that President Biden is saying that we could have a lot of doses of this vaccine by later on in the early summer, and that if things continue on the right track, things could look very different next year. So this whole idea that the COVID pandemic is, could be, it could, I, I know, month. but I, you know what, this is what you do when you're a politician, Brian. You set the expectations lower and then you exceed them. See, that's why I'm not. I set expectations incredibly high and then always fail to deliver. (laughs) So that's why Dominic Chu, I look forward to seeing you the course soon, buddy, in your new shoes. Yes. Um, Thanks very much. I saw you on the gram. All right. (laughs) Now to a bit of a birthday in the bond market, if you will. It was exactly one year ago today that on this show, by the way, that the yield fell below 1% on the 10-year for the first time ever. Listen to this. Let's bring uh, Rick Santelli back in here. Uh, he's out at the CME, obviously, Rick, watching to see if, if, if it happens today or in the next 10 minutes here. Well, uh, I was just getting ready to take a picture because I see 9999. There we go. Snap the picture for history. I think I'll send the copy to Janet Yellen, Ben Bernanke, and maybe Jay Powell. And by the way, Kelly, if you're out there, congratulations to your growing family, and we miss you, and we'll see you soon. By the way, Scott Miner of Guggenheim Partners on this show also yesterday says that we may head it big back below 1% again, even further down the road. Here's what he told us yesterday when I asked him directly. Even with the recent pop, does he think 10-year yields will reverse and go back below 1%? I believe so. Our work shows that as long as this trend uh, stays in place, which, uh, it, as I said, it hasn't been violated yet in 35 years. Uh, you know, the models tell us that we're going to have a 10-year yield that's negative. All right, for more now, let's bring in Bob Michael, head of global fixed income strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management, and Lori Calvacina, head of U.S. equity strategy for RBC Capital Markets. Bob, first to you. I know that's a contrarian call by Scott. Do you agree or disagree? <laughs> No, I don't agree with it. Not when you have monetary, fiscal, and healthcare responses firing on all cylinders and creating an acceleration in the economy. We're looking actually for a very different round trip. We came into 2020 with a 2% 10-year Treasury yield, and we think we're going to exit 2021 with a 2% 10-year Treasury yield. And I think that better reflects all the policy responses we've seen. I guess I guess, Bob, that Scott's point, I don't want to speak for him. I'm just sort of summarizing the interview was that all the stimulus money is going to go, even if it goes into a checking account, will impact things like T-bills and whatever. And the Treasury is drawing down by spending cash. And so they're going to have to borrow more. Money supply goes up. That's the I guess the thesis briefly behind that call, which I know is a contrarian position. Yeah, but but I think there are so many other factors in play right now there will be some sort of new economy that emerges. I don't think anyone believes that we're going back to what the old economy was. That will require a lot of capital investment. We're going to see that. And then also, we're in a world where modern monetary theory is a generally accepted practice. So you can delay paying back that debt for a very long period of time now. 
Lori, let's talk about the stock side because the response from Scott and, and other people on the social media things was basically that if Scott is right, I know Bob disagrees, but if Scott's right, and you should also let me know if you agree or disagree, that equities have nowhere to go but up if yields come back down. Well, look, I would say I'm actually, you know, maybe a contrarian on both fronts. I'm more in Bob's camp on, you know, where the 10-year is headed. Um, I think there are just a lot of factors to look at. And I do think recessions tend to usher in regime changes. Um, but look, I think that the equity market relationship with, with yields is a very, very complicated one. Um, and perhaps if we see the 10-year the move down, you can reinvigorate sort of the tech side of the trade, and that will technically take markets back up again. I wouldn't necessarily say get out of the way because I I think it would be a very, very narrow trade in some of that old leadership. Um, you know, frankly, what I've been spending a lot of time talking to investors about the past few weeks is what happens if yields continue to creep higher. And we actually do think that equities can muddle through it. Um, but we do think that it ushers in one of these new regime changes where the more value cyclical oriented parts of the market are going to work. So I would say it's not as simple, perhaps, as Scott, uh, you know, is sort of suggesting. Well, but by the way, Lori, muddle through. Somebody says, how you doing? I saw muddling through. Not exactly a ringing endorsement. What, is stock, what do you mean by muddling through for stocks? Doesn't sound like you're exactly bullish on the equity market overall. No, look, we, yeah, I mean, you know me, Brian, like I'm never like the raging bull out there, um, but we do have a 4,100 target on the S&P. And I'll just tell you, as, as yields have been creeping up recently, you know, we've really seen the market kind of be flattish. We've given back a little bit, but the market so far seems to be absorbing this rotation out of tech and into the cyclical parts of the market. So it's not really off to the races. We think that will continue to gather steam and you'll, you'll continue to make some headway through year end. Now, if we have the reverse go back in, you know, I'll just, you know, say, look, back last summer when we saw markets kind of trade flattish and, and the tech trade was reinvigorated, people were nervous about the economy. The market seemed to muddle through that and, and really get through that without too much damage, even though there was, you know, kind of a risk off, you know, kind of undertone to the market. So I think we have to sometimes we get too caught up in the particulars. We need to take a step back and say, you know, what is this move up in the bond yield telling us? What is happening with the underlying fundamentals? They are good they are improving. You were talking to Dom about the vaccine trade. Now, I will tell you, a lot of investors mm -hmm. back in January and February thought that people were too optimistic about reopening, were too optimistic about the vaccines. The exact opposite has happened. So, you know, I think we do just need to take a step back and say, where are the fundamentals headed? Are they better or worse than people yeah. are expected? So far, that's a good story for stocks. Well, okay, there it is. Dow's up 80 points right now. It's not down, but it's not up as well. We are muddling through. Lori Calvacina, Bob Michael, <laughs> guys, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Have a good day. All right. Two other hot areas of the market are sort of colliding today. Worlds colliding. Real estate and SPACs. Title insurance company Doma announcing plans to go public in a $3 billion SPAC deal with capital investment. Who is Doma? Well, they use machine technology to speed up the title processing time when buying a home from like five days to as little as one minute. Capital investment up 3% after the announcement as well. Joining us now with more of the deal is Max Simkoff, CEO of Doma. Max, thanks for joining us here. Congratulations on the deal. How exactly do you speed it up? Because as somebody who's bought a home, it took forever and there's a lot of contention in the closing process. What did you figure out? that millions of other people in real estate have not been able to. Thanks, Brian. Well, I think it took us being outside of the real estate industry to figure out that if you use modern day technology, 
to remove most of the friction, frustration, and also the expense of closing a mortgage, it actually is possible using technology that is not exactly novel. We use machine learning to remove the peskiest, most difficult parts of the process and enable people to close their mortgages instantly, digitally, and more cheaply. Okay, so for the, by the way, probably a lot of realtors watching the show, listening in their car, driving around the hot, super hot housing market. How does it work? How much does it cost? What do they need to know? So the way it works is it's just like any other title or escrow solution that they're currently used to using where they send the transaction to us. We use all of our modern day technology and our machine learning to collapse that time frame from days or weeks down to minutes, like you mentioned. And we do it all at an industry beating low cost. We make it a no brainer for every consumer across the country to use this on every refinance and purchase transaction. It's better, faster, cheaper. You are backed by the home building giant, Lennar. You've currently got about 1% of the title insurance market. That's it. That ain't a lot, but it also means there's a lot of runway there. Why are you backed by Lennar? What does the Lennar team bring to the table that you didn't have before? We partnered with Lennar a couple years ago when we actually bought from them one of the largest nationally licensed uh, insurance carriers, title insurance carriers, and local affiliated title agencies. And when we did so, we made Lennar our largest shareholder. They've been an incredible strategic partner for us. And they're a big part of the reason why this business has gone from basically zero in revenue in 2018 to almost 200 million last year, well on our way to 500 million in 2023. What are you going to do with the money? There are a lot of proceeds. I know there's a pipe. You got to pay off some of the early investors as well. What's the next step for you, Max? Most of this capital is going to go onto the balance sheet. As you've mentioned, we've got some phenomenal new investors like BlackRock, Fidelity, the Goris Group, Hedda Sophia, SoftBank, Wells Capital. Lennar is also investing in this pipe. And in terms of what we're going to do with the capital, we are going to invest to take us much further beyond what we've reflected as our self-funded plan that takes us to $500 million by 2023. We see multiple paths to get this business to more like a billion and a billion and a half billion to a billion and a half dollars of revenue over the next three to five years. And we're going to do that by accelerating the escape velocity we already have in the markets we're in and also entering new markets. Max Simkoff, appreciate it. There's our SPAC 50 index, by the way, on CNBC. Congrats to you and your team. Thank you for coming on the program, Max. Take care. Thanks for having me, Brian. Well, it's been burning on, but like if you think the SPAC craze is over, Goldman Sachs disagrees. Goldman finding that some blank check companies are trading at major premiums, more than 40% or more above their IPO price. Maybe that's the sign of a bubble. Who knows? To learn more, head over to cnbc.com slash pro to get that list of some of those SPACs Goldman is naming. All right, coming up, while approved in Europe, AstraZeneca's vaccine is yet to get the green light in the United States. Why? I'll speak with the company about the state of its phase three trial, how soon they may become the fourth vaccine in the U.S. market. Plus, arts, crafts, and cash. Why Michaels is going private. Apollo's co-head of the company's P.E. business will join us to talk deals. We're back in two. This is The Exchange on CNBC.
Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, we talk a lot about vaccinations and this sort of concept that some of the states that have yet to reopen may get there sooner than later. Well, here are the numbers on the vaccine rollout from the CDC. More than 100 million doses of vaccines have officially been delivered in the U.S., nearly 80 million of those being administered. 51.7 million people over the age of 18 have received at least one dose. That equals about 20 percent of the adult American population in the U.S., and just over 26 million have received both doses, meaning about 10% of the adults in the U.S. are now fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Now, cases and hospitalizations are, thankfully, plummeting. In Arizona, a seven-day average of new cases is down 92% from its peaks of two months ago. California, also down 90%. And even New York is down 57% from its highs. And keep in mind, folks, that there are a lot, millions of others who have had it and recovered as well, natural, whatever kind of immunity you want to talk about, maybe hopefully here sooner than later. Well, let's talk about that because as supply and distribution picks up here at home, it is a very different story overseas, particularly when it comes to AstraZeneca's vaccine. Meg Terrell joining us now with the latest and a special guest on that. Meg. Brian, thank you so much. Public health experts will tell us that the pandemic risk to us here in the United States and everywhere really isn't gone until it's mitigated everywhere around the world. Uh, AstraZeneca in Oxford this week announcing that they are shipping the first doses of the vaccine to some low and middle income countries. For some of these, the first access to vaccines they are getting uh, this week to Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire uh, last week and this week, the Philippines, Indonesia, Fiji, Mongolia and Moldova, all part of a plan over the coming months to ship to 142 countries, hundreds of millions of doses of this vaccine through a facility known as COVAX, which is trying to facilitate getting vaccines to low and middle income countries. This, as Brian, we've just seen a report from The Wall Street Journal saying that in Europe, some of these doses of the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine are piling up uh, as they say there are not enough data for the vaccine in older people. So joining us to discuss all of this is Dr. Rude Dauber, president of AstraZeneca North America and executive vice president of biopharmaceuticals for AstraZeneca. Rude, it's good to see you. Thanks for being with us. You know, let's start first with that report out of Europe, the idea that there aren't enough data to support using the vaccine in older people. How does AstraZeneca look at that approach? No, first of all, thank you so much for having me in, the, in, in your show. Uh, I think it's very important, first of all, that the regulators uh, have clearly approved uh, our vaccine for, uh, for an unlimited age up to over 65. Secondly, I think there was a little bit of confusion initially about the amount of data in, 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 in elderly. I think recently we have been able to show by real-world evidence in Scotland and Public Health England that the vaccine is highly effective and safe also in the elderly population. Just to give you uh, one number, over, over 80% of efficacy in, in people over 80 years. So you see more and more uh, local organizations changing the guidelines. So I, th I think it's more a matter of time that you will see that uh, in, in Europe, people will embrace this vaccine uh, for, for elderly as well. 
And as you are starting to ship to low and middle income countries as well, tell us about the manufacturing capacity that you and Oxford have established sort of around the world through partners, the Serum Institute of India. How many doses do you expect will be manufactured this year? And how do you decide how to allocate those through COVAX or to other more rich countries? Yeah, thank you so much. So we, we, we have set ourselves an enormous high ambition in order to supply uh, close to $3 billion, uh, three billion doses uh, this, uh, this year. That's a massive effort and, 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 and the colleagues in AstraZeneca, but also our partners are doing everything in order to, to supply that. Equally, we made a very important pledge to, to supply more than 300 million doses uh, to the low and middle income countries, because I think it's very important that, of course, we, we would like to see every American, every European vaccinated by good vaccines. But equally, the, the world is not safe as long as not everyone has been vaccinated. So we have a, a very clear pledge in order to secure a broad and equitable access around the world. And therefore, we are very excited to see the first doses going to the low and middle income countries, as you mentioned in your introduction. Well, you also have a phase three trial that's ongoing here in the United States. We understand it's now fully enrolled. You're expecting data potentially over the next few weeks. I wonder if you could help us just sort of set the stage for what to expect from the data here, because you are spacing the doses in this trial four weeks apart. Meanwhile, you've generated data from other countries showing if you space the doses farther apart, maybe 12 weeks, you get higher efficacy. So we're testing a regimen here that that might have lower efficacy. How should we expect to interpret these results? Yeah, first of all, I think the data in the, in the United States is extremely important, and I will address your dosing interval question in, the, in, the, in, the, in a second. First of all, it has a relatively high uh, proportion, over 20% of elderly. So we will get a new data set in order to show that our vaccine is effective in, in, in elderly. Second, we have a very large group of minorities in, in, in our trial. So the, the trial will give us new information we didn't have before. Coming back to your to your your fair question about dosing interval, it's true. Uh, the, the the U.S. trial was designed at, at the moment that we didn't know exactly what was the optimal dosing interval, and therefore in the U.S. trial uh, we have four weeks, and that may not maximize the efficacy. Equally, we have now overwhelming evidence that if you wait a little bit longer for your second shot, you see the, in- the you see clearly the increase in efficacy. So it's up to the regulator as well as other uh, bodies in order then to decide if we are getting an EUA, how the label will look like. But we are, we are, we are very positive regarding the, the potential data we are going to get out of the U.S. And it will really help to further uh, accelerate the number of vaccines in, also in the United States because we need to have more vaccines in order to secure that everyone can get a vaccination sooner than later. Well, on that point, how much do you expect to have here in the U.S.? How many doses uh, upon emergency use authorization? Yeah, uh, upon uh, EUA, uh, EUA, we are expecting uh, to start with 30 million in, in the first month, up to 50 million. So uh, we are already produce, producing at high speed as we speak. So we feel comfortable in order to have 50 million after the first month. And after that, uh, we have a clear ambition to uh, uh, to supply between 15 and 25 million a month. So the numbers are very substantial and we are on track in order to deliver our commitment to deliver 300 million doses to the U.S. government. All right, Rude Domber, we appreciate you being with us. Thanks so much. Thank you. And Brian, back over to you. All right, Meg, thank, Meg, thank you very much. Fantastic and important interview. Again, always, Meg's just bringing it. All right, on deck. 
How has the job market really changed in the past year? And where will the tech jobs be post-COVID? The CEO of a company whose stock has nearly doubled in a year is here. This could be a new name to you, I'll bet. Then, from what could be the most valuable tweet ever to the largest one-day gain ever in wealth, we'll look at the so-called Reddit rich. Dow's up 156. We're back after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. All right, welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. As you can see, the stock market is higher from a Dow perspective, but growth, again, taking a hit. The Nasdaq is down more than 1% off 171 points. The Dow is the exact opposite, up 154 points. You got sort of these boring old names which are leading the market, financials, industrials, energy. They are all your leaders, certainly, in the market today. Utilities and healthcare, the biggest sector laggards right now, along with technology, Take a look at crude oil, up more than 2% again today, right around 61 bucks a barrel. Remember, there's a pretty big OPEC meeting tomorrow. Oil has been the trade this year. Oil and oil stocks up 33% in 2021. In the meantime, renewables are going the other way. The TAN, solar ETF, QCLN, ICLN ETFs, they're all down. In fact, the TAN, the solar ETF, which boomed last year, is now lower this year. Also in focus, so-called gig economy stocks, names like Fiverr, DoorDash, and Grubhub, they're all lower. Uber and Lyft, though, they are notable standouts. In fact, they're higher. Lyft saying it's on track for its best week since the pandemic lockdowns began. Lyft is up more than 10.5%. Uber up 4.5%. Lyft saying it expects a smaller quarterly loss than previously projected. And how can we not show you rocket companies? This is the the GameStop of this week, if you will, on Wall Street bets, the RKT, that stock going the opposite direction. It is down almost 30% right now. All right, now let's go to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Brian. Hello, everyone. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says that the Senate could take up the COVID relief bill as early as tonight. That's after income limits were tightened for stimulus checks and some projects were removed from the bill. Investigators are looking into the possibility that migrants breached the border wall with Mexico before an SUV carrying 25 people collided with a tractor trailer, killing 13 of them. And a Pentagon report says that former White House physician Ronnie Jackson, quote, bullied and humiliated people who worked for him in that job. Jackson, now a congressman from Texas, denies the allegations, calling them untrue partisan attacks. And watch the news with Shepard Smith to find out what else Jackson is accused of doing while working for the White House. That, of course, airs at 7 p.m. Eastern. That is our CNBC News update for this hour. Brian, I'll send it back to you. All right. Thank you, Rahel Solomon. All right. Coming up, why the so-called smart money is betting on Vegas and scrapbooking. Apollo Group taking retailer Michael's private sending shares soaring. Also snapping up some of Las Vegas Sands properties. We'll speak with one of the key players in both of those deals next. We're back after this. 
All right, welcome back. Private equity firm Apollo making two big bets today, one on Las Vegas Sands, the other on arts and crafts retailer Michaels. Shares of Las Vegas Sands trading at their highest level in more than a year on the news. Leslie Picker is here now with the details and one of the folks behind the deal. Leslie. Hey, Brian, that's right. Two massive deals announced today by Apollo. The first, as you mentioned, Apollo agreed to buy the operating company of the Venetian from Las Vegas Sands for $2.25 billion. VG Properties is purchasing the land and real estate assets underneath the Venetian for $4 billion. Apollo signed a long-term lease for the Venetian with uh, Vici as part of that transaction. For Las Vegas Sands part, the deal was a key part of their transformation away from well, Las Vegas and toward Asia. In the release, CEO Robert Goldstein noting that Macau and Singapore are at the center of the company's attention right now. Apollo also crafting up another buyout, taking Michael's company's private. The retailer has been a huge beneficiary. You can see the stock price right there of the do-it-yourself mentality of the pandemic. Stock price surging nearly 500 percent over the last year. Now, that didn't scare off the normally value-oriented Apollo, which made an unsolicited offer and ultimately agreed to acquire Michaels for 22 bucks a share, a whopping 47% premium to the stock price from last Friday before reports surfaced that a deal was in the works. Now, Michaels shareholders clearly applauding this deal, sending that stock above the $22 per share value. What does that mean? Well, perhaps it's the notion that there could be a higher offer than the transact given the transactions go shop provision, which allows Michaels to solicit other suitors over the next 25 days. Either way, we haven't seen too many traditional take privates as of late today. There are two, plus both of these deals are in sectors that have been transformed in the pandemic, retail and travel. So many, many questions on this. For more on these deals, we're joined by David Samber, co-head of private equity at Apollo Global Management. Thank you so much, David, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Uh, some may look at these deals, especially in the sectors they're in, kind of an uncertain time right now. We haven't seen that much in the way of, of buyouts recently. Uh, they may look at this and say, wow, this is a pretty contrarian take, betting on travel, betting on retail. Uh, can you help give us a, a sense of how Apollo is viewing the future right now in a post-pandemic world? Sure. <clears throat> and first of all, thanks for having me on this afternoon. Um, look, you hit the nail on the head. Contrarian, I think, is what we're known for. Um, with both of these investments, we're taking a point of view uh, regarding the future. I think for travel in particular, this is one of several bets we've made in the last 12 months regarding the recovery of people's desires to travel, whether it's our investment in Expedia, uh, the recent take private we did for Great Canadian, the large Canadian gaming company, uh, restructuring Aeromexico out of bankruptcy, investing in Sazka, the European uh, lottery operator, or buying IGT's Lotomatica business. Uh, we've been amongst the most active in terms of expressing a view that once people are comfortable and feel safe enough to do so, they'll resume uh, past behaviors. But buying the Venetian is not just about buying travel per se, uh, because this has a large business component to it as well. The largest privately owned convention center in the United States. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our audience members have, have been there for conferences or things that are actually oriented around business travel. So do you actually see business travel as coming back as a way to benefit from this acquisition? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, the short answer is we do. I think the recovery curve for business travel will look a little bit different than the recovery curve for leisure travel. Um, one of the benefits of our business model is we're able to do 
deep due diligence and primary research. And a couple of key highlights to point out. The first is uh, traditionally business travel is correlated with corporate profits in the stock market, both of which I think you know from your reporting are doing quite well. The other thing we were able to do as part of our due diligence was really look at the business that's on the books uh, for the next three or four years because the, the, the convention business books out several years in advance. And we were able to speak uh, to several customers and get a sense of their travel plans. And based on that work, we were comfortable uh, that people will return to going to conventions. And in fact, some may say the convention business could be stronger in a post-COVID world as you have distributed workforces that spend less time together, the business case for a meeting once a year, twice a year, four times a year to get people together could actually be stronger. Mm, that's that's really interesting. I actually haven't heard it uh, put quite that way. Um, another aspect of the pandemic has been kind of this do-it-yourself mentality. People have taken up hobbies, crafting and the like. Obviously, that's been a huge uh, a boon for my goals, which, you know, this transaction implies about a 7x multiple on forward EBITDA. As I mentioned earlier, it's a 47% premium to trading uh, prior to reports surfacing about this deal being in the works. Uh, you know, what is it that you see as, as your ability to derive value at these levels? Uh, and are you worried that there could be a competitive bidder that might come in uh, above the $22 price target as the market is indicating right now? Right. So so in some respects, these deals are different sides of the same coin. The Venetians, a business that was very negatively impacted by coronavirus. Michael's, to your point, is a business that did quite well uh, by people staying at home and looking for alternatives. Certainly in the early days of the recession, you quoted the stock price the market thought that it would be negatively impacted, but it turned out being quite positively impacted. Um, look, I can't comment on on what might happen in terms of competitors, but what I can say is um, this is a business that has done exceptionally well during the pandemic. Um, it's probably hard to envision it continues to have above normal profitability long-term, um, but what we see with this business, we have a long history in specialty retail at the firm uh, the partner that worked on this deal, Angie Drouard, has worked on several specialty retail deals. And we have a specific point of view about how to create value um, in this business. And anytime you buy a public company or even a private company like we do, it's not just the macro. you got to get the macro and the micro right. And there has to be something we're doing to create value to justify stepping up and buying a business. And, and what is that plan? Uh, you know, what is the way forward for Michaels, especially if, as you mentioned, it's possible that the profitability has peaked at this point? Yeah, a lot of it, a lot, not a lot of it's tactical, um, you know, basic things that we know through our experience in running large retail operations, some of it's strategic. Um, there's a couple of ideas we have regarding growth that I'm not at liberty to get into at this point, but um, suffice it to say, we do have uh, some pretty exciting things that we've been working on that we're hopefully we'll share in the future. Uh, what about the, the private equity industry as a whole right now? Um, you know, there's been a few years now where we've seen a tremendous amount of dry powder being raised, uh, fundraising for various private equity funds. Uh, Apollo has raised one of the largest in recent years, $25 billion. Uh, how is the deal environment right now? How difficult is it to put that capital to work? Obviously, two deals today, um, but overall, the industry uh, has 
had a bit more of a challenging time, especially now that you've got SPACs as competitors for deals. You've got corporates with a lot of cash on the balance sheet that could be competitors for deals. Can you give us a sense of kind of what it's like uh, behind the scenes in the deal environment right now? Sure. Look, I don't think we make a very sympathetic figure if I stand here and tell you how tough our job is. Um, I think uh, professional investors love to bemoan the environment that they're in. Things are either too expensive or when things are cheap, it's because the economy is uncertain and financing is not available. You know, what I'll say is that even in this economy, which has a lot of momentum, and I think valuations for many businesses are fair or quite full, we're seeing a lot of opportunities. I think today's two good examples of that. And even in 2020, we had one of the biggest years in the history of our firm. So I think we're still finding value. We're still finding opportunities in an otherwise, what I would say, kind of fully valued, fairly valued market. Yeah. Well, clearly two uh, big deals announced today. The Venetian Michaels. Thank you, David Samber, uh, who is the co-head of that private equity business at Apollo. We appreciate you joining us today. Brian. And Leslie, by the way, it was not just that. Mavis Discount Tire. Don't forget, six and a half <laughs> billion dollar deal. You're right. You're right. For a tire and oil changing shop. You're right. Three big take privates today. C- come on. They're just greasing the wheels of capitalism. Mm. Greasing, greasing the wheels. That's a tire yep. chain joke. I, Leslie Picker, thank you. I thought you. I had not uh, a good one. taken up all of the puns for today, but you, you have you know, come in with one more. So thanks for that. That tire joke really fell flat. Anyway, (laughs) Leslie, thank you. All right, coming up. Rocket, I knew Leslie would appreciate it. Nobody else did. Rocket, not lifting off today. Shares down nearly 30%, but the recent monster run, powered by Reddit, made Rocket founder Down Gilbert a very wealthy man. We'll dig into just how Reddit rich he and the likes of GameStop's Ryan Cohen have really become. By the way, take a look at shares of General Dynamics stock at session highs after announcing... And it will increase dividend by 8.2%. It's 24th annual hike. We're back up to this. All right, welcome back to the exchange. Rocket Companies, the latest stock to get a boost for the Reddit crowd. And in the process, we have seen some crazy wealth creation. When we talk about wealth creation, got to bring in Robert Frank, who joins us now on exactly... Who has gotten Reddit rich? Robert. Hey, Brian. Well, Reddit has created a whole new kind and a whole new speed of wealth creation and destruction. Rocket's largest shareholder, Dan Gilbert, added more than $30 billion to his net worth just yesterday with that stock move. So in one day, he basically added a Rupert Murdoch or a Fred Smith, Barry Diller and Jack Dorsey all combined in one day. Today, he lost to Ken Griffin, or about $15 billion. So his net worth is now around $50 billion, basically right about even with Michael Bloomberg at around 23rd on the world's rich list. Ryan Cohen, the GameStop activist, he has seen his GameStop stake go from $76 million when he bought it, that was uh, back over uh, about a year and a half ago, to over $3 billion in January back down to $400 million, and then his ice cream tweet, that brought it back to over a billion dollars. So that was basically a $600 million ice cream cone. Look at the Cost family. They're the largest shareholders of the headphone maker, Cost Corp. They continue to cash out 
on their shares. CEO Michael Koss selling over a million dollars worth of shares just last week. That was on top of the more than 13 million he sold back in January, Brian. So, you know, the, the, the idea with Reddit was to democratize finance, but in the process, they have made the already wealthy and the billionaires a lot of money in the short term. But there's also been people like we highlighted on this show, I think last month, that threw in like 500 bucks and, and jacked it up to $200,000. So as long as, I guess, although on every trade, there's a, there's a seller too, right, Robert? I mean, there's, there's somebody on the other side of every trade. Yeah, that's right. And it depends on when they got in and, and when they get out. But what's interesting about all these people, whether you're talking about Gilbert, the Cost family, or Ryan Cohen, is they are either founders, so they have little or no cost basis to their shares, or like Ryan Cohen, he got in with that. Again, his, at his investment was $76 million, now over a billion dollars. So I doubt that any of the Reddit folks got that kind of buy-in level. But we'll see. You're right. A lot of people are making a lot of money, not just these founders. Robert Frank, looking at the Reddit rich, you got cost, the GameStop, the rocket companies. It all comes together somehow, Robert. Thank you very much. All right, still ahead. By now, we all know or at least believe that working remotely might play a large part in what the future of work looks like for many of us that can, you know, do that kind of thing. So with that in mind, what are the next challenges facing employers when they look for the best employees? We'll speak with the CEO of IT recruiting firm ASGN. The stock has doubled in a year on where the jobs are post-pandemic. And take a look at shares of Elanco Animal Health. The stock popping right now and reports from Dow Jones that Starboard Value Partners has taken a stake in the company and nominated three people to the board. Stock's up 2%. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back. Let's talk jobs and an important checkup on the health of the labor market this week. The ADP report showing that private sector payrolls increased by 117,000 jobs last month, 60,000 fewer than predicted. Hey, if schools aren't open and you can't leave your kids home alone, how do you go to work? Anyway, taking a closer look, there are some encouraging signs for job growth in industries like trade, transportation, education, and even leisure and hospitality starting to open up just a bit. So as the recovery grinds on, the post-pandemic labor market's starting to take shape. But exactly how will it look? ASGN Incorporated is a leading provider of IT and professional services, might be perfectly poised for the future of work. And by the way, stock, you might know about it, it's nearly doubled in the past year. Joining us now is Ted Hansen. He is CEO of ASGN. Ted, it's good to have you on the program, maybe for the first time. I'm not sure. Thanks for joining us here. What is, when you look at it as an IT staffing firm, what is the post-pandemic workforce going to look like? Thanks, Brian. It's great to be with you today. Um, if you really think about the future of work in post-pandemic, uh, there's been structural change here, right? So, you know, where before the confines of where uh, the client was located and the technology worker needed to be, um, you know, cost us not to utilize really that workforce the way we could. Uh, while we'll not be remote forever, uh, certainly we're almost 100% remote today, uh, we'll be coming back into the office. And we're really going to be, as I said, in a hybrid model. Um, I think clients already are thinking differently about the future of work uh, because the pandemic has taught us that remote works. You know, we've learned how to manage productivity. Uh, we've learned how to collaborate. We've learned how to uh, keep projects going and even get them done and start new things. 
And so I think in the future, there's no question our clients are telling us that they're open to access talent anywhere in the U.S., just not uh, in the particular geography where they uh, have an location. And then I think for the worker, what's really important here, the tech worker, is now the opportunities are boundless. You know, they might have looked at an opportunity that was in L.A. or New York or Dallas or what have you, and going forward, they really can think more broadly about where they want to apply their talent. So, so for sure, even though we're going to come back into the office to some degree, uh, the future of work has changed. Yeah, and there's also the types of IT industries, I would imagine, Ted, have changed as well. Edge computing is now sort of the newest thing over cloud computing, which, of course, is still growing. If you're going to say to somebody, okay, you want a career in IT, where are the jobs, not geographically, but where are the jobs industry-wide going to be? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Brian. So if you really think about what's most in demand today, we've seen kind of an enormous surge over the last six months in kind of five areas. Uh, Certainly project management, uh, business analyst capabilities, just to run and keep these projects going, Uh, cloud information security, data and business intelligence, and then uh, just overall, if you will, uh, a sense of willing to do that on a remote basis. Uh, just anecdotally, a uh, request for remote work today and for the future is up over 300, 300%, if you will, from our clients uh, back to us. Wow. And very quickly, Ted, running out of time, the, the Stimulus Act actually is a big part of, of your business as far as federal contractors. A lot of people may not have a job April 1st. I think that's right. You know, there's uh, Section 3610 of the CARES Act, which is going to run out on March 31st. And it was really a way for us to keep talent available for our government clients. And so we're very encouraged that's going to be extended, but it's important to those tech workers and obviously important to us as we provide solutions back to those government clients. Ted Hanson, CEO of ASGN. Ted, we appreciate it. Thank you very much for coming on the program and CNBC. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. All right. Take care. By the way, one more check on the market. So we head to break and power lunch coming up after the break. It's a tale of two markets. The Dow is up, not a lot, of 57. Technology, though, continues to get hit. That swap into value and sort of old school cyclicals from technology simply continues. Well, that's up for us today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 